Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The Hebrew Bible, known as the Tanakh, or to many people, the Hebrew Scriptures, offers us two very interesting stories about the creation of humanity, both found in Genesis. So I want to begin um, with the following. Um, This is Genesis 1 verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on earth. And God created man in his image. Et ha'adam, it says in Hebrew, betsalmo, betselam Elohim. And God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him. And then the text says, Zachar v'nikeva bara otam. God created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fertile, increase, fill the earth, master it, rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and all the living things that creep on earth. Now, that is probably the more well-known story of the creation of humanity. But just a few verses later, in chapter 2, beginning with verse 4, we read the following. Such is the story of heaven and earth when they were created. When the Lord God made earth and heaven, when no shrub of the field was yet on earth and no grasses the field had yet sprouted, Because the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the soil, but a flow would well up from the ground and the water, and water the whole surface of the earth, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the earth. He blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and placed there a man whom he had formed. And from the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that was pleasing in the sight and good for food, with the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and bad. I'm going to skip um, a bit to verse uh, 18 of Genesis 2. Then God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a fitting helper for him. And the Lord God formed out of the earth all the wild beasts and all the birds of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called such each living creature, that would be its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds and to the sky and to all the wild beasts. But for Adam, no fitting helper was found. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon the man. And while Adam slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that spot. And the Lord God fashioned the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one uh, shall be called woman, for from man she was taken. 
And then the story ends in verse 24. Hence, a man leaves his wife and mother and clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. Now, some of you may be more familiar with the story from Genesis 1, and some of you may be more familiar with the story from Genesis 2, and in fact, some of you may even know that there are two stories. Throughout Jewish tradition and Jewish history, these two stories have certainly posed questions for both rabbis and scholars. With me this morning is Professor Shauna Delansky, who specializes in biblical study with a focus on the history and religions of Israel and ancient Near East and the development of the Hebrew Bible. Her research incorporates the tools of literary criticism, comparative religion, historical study, anthropology, archaeology, political science, in order to understand the worlds of the original authors and the audiences of biblical texts. And of course, she wishes to understand the subsequent development of Judaism and Christianity out of ancient Israelite religious beliefs and practices. Um, she has um, studied in the United States, although she is a native of Ottawa, and currently she is instructor in the College of the Humanities at Carleton. Um, and it is a pleasure to invite um, Dr. Delansky to Jewish faith and Jewish um, facts to help us understand these two uh, central texts in the life of the Jewish world and the Christian world. So good morning, Dr. Delansky. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. So um, you heard my rendition of the two texts, neither of which I think are foreign to you. So nope. let's begin by uh, trying to understand how um, the biblical text offered us two different visions of the creation of humanity. How do you understand that? Well, I can understand that in a couple of different ways. Um, and uh, often the explanation will depend on, on who's asking. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll give you my scholarly explanation, and, um, and that is that uh, according to biblical scholarship for the last, 150 or so years, um, we, uh, who, scholars are reading the biblical text not for theological uh, purposes or, or uh, for answers um, about the nature of God or what the text may mean for us today, but we're reading the text uh, trying to understand um, its meaning for its original audience, um, its original authors, what it may have meant, uh, given what we can reconstruct of the worldview of ancient Israel. And often that's a, a very different task than reading the text for meaning today. Um, and the way in which biblical scholars uh, look at the biblical text, and that when we have two different stories, uh, two different orders for creation, two different emphases, uh, there's actually a different way of describing God in each of these stories. Um, this is often taken as uh, one of, of many kind of proof texts for what we call the documentary hypothesis. That's a hypothesis that the, um, the Hebrew Bible, and specifically focusing on, on the Torah, has uh, different authors. And, those, and, and the stories, the narratives, the laws, uh, the poetry of these different authors are interwoven often throughout the text. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2-3 are taken as 
uh, deriving from different authors, um, attesting to slightly different ways of understanding God and his relationship with humanity. And from the uh, perspective of the scholar, um, the different authorship um, reflects simply um, different intentionalities or reflects a kind of um, different time frame? It may reflect both. It may reflect um, also, I mean, one thing that we learn when we study ancient Near Eastern myths um, is that so often uh, any given culture would have multiple myths to explain the same phenomena, and often these myths were contradictory. Um, so, you, you know, you have a whole bunch of different creation myths that coexist, that name different gods as creators, different methods of creation, um, and they're all kind of used within the same culture in a way that I think is often foreign to the way that we think about how, how um, myth or scripture ought to be used. That is, they don't point to a single truth with a capital T, but they point to multiple truths with lowercase t's. And different ones are, are useful for different situations. And so when a scholar such as yourself looks at the Hebrew scriptures and recognizes that it has um, um, usages uh, today that may have been quite different from the intentions of the original um, authors, um, is it important for you to um, find a way to bring uh, those intentions into line with each other, or just uh, to acknowledge that the differences exist? Well, again, I guess it depends on who, who my audience is. Um, I, I like to, uh, well, sticking to the ancient world and, and looking at it in, in the way in which I can best reconstruct based on, you know, all of the comparative literature and the archaeology, etc. Um, looking at it in that context is often a little bit safer than <laughs> entering into sort of modern discussions of what the Bible means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so I, find, I find it helpful to sort of lay out to my students um, or when I'm writing to my audience uh, that that's, to make it explicit that that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm looking at it in that context, how it's been taken since. I mean, the history of interpretation of any text, but of this text in particular, um, often reflects the values and customs uh, and traditions and ideas of the various cultures that have adopted it and made it their own. And so a single text has multiple meanings over time. And, I mean, that's, that's more the case, I think, with the Bible than with other texts. But if you think of a piece of art, it's, it's not that different. Um, often people will look at a piece of art and, and it'll have a profound meaning for them and learning that it had a very different meaning or would have had a very different meaning for, for the artist who, who created it doesn't tend to affect um, the experience for the later or different audience. But with the uh, biblical text... Um, I suppose some of your work would be uh, theologically challenging to those who have um, not yet adopted a more a different approach to it. Yes, and it definitely can be. And um, it was something that you know uh, people often quip that graduate training doesn't equip you to um, 
to actually teach. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, that's true. Um, when I started teaching, I was still a graduate student, and I was very enthusiastic about what I was learning, and I wanted to share it with the undergraduates that I was teaching um, without really giving them a frame of reference for what I was doing that was different than perhaps the way they, <laughs> they, tr- they had been used to approaching the, the biblical text. And uh, at one point, I was talking about a passage in Isaiah and I was contextualizing it in the 8th century BCE, where it's a passage that many people in my class read as a prediction about Jesus. And, and I said, okay, but in the 8th century BCE, this is what they're pointing to. And someone stood up and, in the class and, and was very frustrated and said, well, what makes your opinion different than mine? Right. Um, and, and I said, well, you know, and I, had to, I had to really think through, you know, what is the difference the, the, between what I'm doing and what they're doing. And, and now when I start teaching um, any undergraduate class in religion, I start by talking about what academic study of the Bible means and how it's different in its goals and in its assumptions about the text from theological study. And that seems to just put everybody in, you know, in, in a better ease. frame of... Yeah, yeah. Right. Although, that I mean, it is a challenge to take a text like the Hebrew Scriptures, which... Um, if you're a traditionalist, is um, older than 3,000 years, mm-hmm. and from a more scholarly perspective, perhaps 2,500 years, mm-hmm. and ask the question, um, is this written to a particular audience that lived 3,000 years ago, mm-hmm. or is this written for an audience of all times? Right. Um, and I guess what you're suggesting is it very much depends on the circumstances in which you are reading the text. That's absolutely right, yeah. Um, but and, 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 yeah your go goal, and your goal in reading the text as well. I mean, um, if my goal is to read the Bible, um, and my understanding, if, if my goal is to understand what God wants from me today as I'm reading the Bible, my, then that's a theological goal, and I'm making certain assumptions. I'm assuming that the text is eternal, and it's timeless, and it's written for me just as it was written for someone two, 3,000 years ago, um, and that, that when I read it, I can understand something, you know, an eternal kind of truth. When I'm reading it as a text that's produced from an ancient society in another language, in another culture, in another very different worldview from our own, um, I'm not... I'm not, my goal is not to understand God, but perhaps to understand how those people understood their God. And that's a, that's a fundamental difference, and the assumptions that come with it are different as well. Okay, so let's use that comment as a segue back to the text. From a scholarly perspective, um, what would you um, see as the intentionality of the author in each of these stories? What truth, not necessarily with a capital T, but what truth of its time frame would the author be hoping to communicate to his reader, his listener, uh, probably more likely his listener at first? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that's an interesting way of actually approaching the text, because um, the, to try to determine the intention of the author, we need to see what the, you know, what the content is. And, and one of the things that people notice about the Garden of Eden story in Genesis 2 and 3 is that there's a lot more kind of detail that would be important to human life. Um, so uh, 
a lot of people talk about um, Genesis 2 and 3 as a, a series of etiologies or kind of a technical word for explanations of uh, why things are the way they are. Uh, so we get a great explanation for why snakes don't have legs in that story. Um, we get an explanation for why people don't wear cl- why people wear clothing rather. Um, we get an explanation for why uh, women in the author's own day um, uh, are submissive to their husbands. Um, and these are all things that the author seems to have thought needed some kind of explanation set in the beginning of time. Um, that is, if you, if you think of him as, as putting together a story that explains certain features of the life that he knows in his own time period, the things that he sees fit to explain, I think, are really uh, enlightening um, in terms of what he thinks are, are important, perhaps anomalies. These are anomalies that he, perhaps he notes from the animal kingdom. They don't wear clothes. Why do we wear clothes? Uh, or we ate from this tree. Um, why do we feel shame when we're naked? Um, th- those, those kinds of, uh, you know, why snakes don't have legs, I guess, was a pressing question as well, or perhaps that just fit in more easily. Um, but uh, why, why women, why men are in charge in, uh, in marriages in the author's own day? And so, so, so one could yeah. read that not so much as saying m- men m- must be in charge, but rather, um, rather as descriptive rather than proscriptive. Exactly, exactly, and that's what what biblical scholars often say about this particular text and, and other texts in the Bible. Whereas we have explicit laws later on that say this is how you shall behave. That's not what this is. This is a myth um, that describes uh, or explains certain situations that that obtain in the author's own day, and it, so it's describing. Uh, marital relations in the author's own day. It's not understanding itself, at least in my scholarly estimation, it's not understanding itself as scripture that is prescribing for Mm -hmm. all time. Um, And do scholars have a sense of um, the process that was uh, used to change these texts from um, that which was its original intention to being um, understood as the Word of God? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, there's, uh, there are a lot of different explanations for this and, and discussions about this. Um, I think if I were to try to, to abbreviate them, uh, the documentary hypothesis and various you know, there are a number of variations on this basic idea that we have a whole bunch of different texts that are brought together. Uh, They seem to be brought together uh, to tell the story of a people um, in a way that we would today very loosely call history. They're not doing history the way that a historian does, but they're trying to explain how they got where they're at when they're putting it together. And where they're at... So the same principle, right? Yes, the the same same principle principle, that um, the... um, author, the, the teller of the story says, um, how did we get to the behaviors that we have today in yep. my society? That's right. And then um, someone else, perhaps later, says, how did we uh, reach the uh, belief structure that we have? Yes, yes. And um, how do we preserve this belief structure? Because they're, um, as far as we can tell, putting these together in a collection that is um, 
it's, it's not what we would call a canon yet, but it's a collection of texts that are kind of a testament, if you will, to a civilization that has gone through an enormous crisis and change. And so they're going to bring all of these texts together in uh, probably in Babylon in exile in the 6th century BCE after the Babylonians have uh, exiled the people of Judea from their region and burned their temple to the ground. Um, the Babylonians did this to a lot of people, and the Assyrians right. did this to people before. Uh, what we see different, um, differently among the people of Judah is they seem to interpret events um, not as, well, the Babylonian gods are stronger than our god, um, or, you know, uh, and so when we move to Babylon, we'll do what everyone else does. We're going to worship the gods of the Babylonians. Rather, there seems to be a sense that we brought this on ourselves. Um, we did not obey the terms of the covenant that we had with our God. And, and this and is all expressed in the, uh, in the writings we call the prophets. That's right. That's right. You see this explicitly and very clearly in Jeremiah, for example. Right. Um, and, uh, and so if that's the case, then, and, we ha- and they understood themselves as having some sort of covenant relationship with this God, Jeremiah tells them that God will punish them and then he will bring them back and, you know, and, and re-covenant with them. So how do we get there? Well, we need to collect our traditions that tell us how we got here so that we can undo what we've done historically and, uh, and make things up and, and be able to enter into this covenant with God again. So, so the book comes out of this, well, it's not a book at this point, but the series right. of scrolls um, come, comes out of this uh, enormous crisis um, with, a, with a kind of conscious decision that um, we can find our way back, we can recovenant, and when we do, God will give us back our land, um, because that's part of his end of the bargain in this covenant, and he'll come back to protecting us, um, and, but we have to keep our end of the bargain, we have to keep his commandments that he's given to us. So what they do is they, they collect all of the stories um, that some of them, are, you know, uh, many of them are, have laws embedded in them, or they right. take the laws and they embed them in these stories, but they imbue both the stories and the laws with um, this historical meaning um, that uh, it's, a, it's an authoritative guide to how they ought to behave, where they went wrong, and that should inform uh, how they behave going forward. And so, using the paradigm of covenant... Yes, as using the, the paradigm of covenant. Of the ba- as the basis of that, that this people from Judah have uh, a relationship with what they identify as their God, um, and that they think that that is worth uh, maintaining. Right. And from this point on, um, they understand themselves to, uh, to, to be getting a second chance and to need to do things uh, in accordance with this covenant, and one of the one of the really interesting things uh, about, I mean, these are this is all hypothesized based on sure. the few texts that we have. But Ezra and Nehemiah is a great text that tells us about how this community sort of reconstitutes itself, and it tells us that when Ezra read the words of the Torah to the people, they heard things that they'd never heard before. They started celebrating the holiday of Sukkot, which they didn't know they were supposed to celebrate. Right. So. So we sort of have built into the text this idea that there were a multiplicity of voices that have been brought together, and not all members of every you know, part of the Jewish community at this time was aware of all of these different laws and stories and 
So in bringing them together here, um, you have this kind of unification, but also uh, a standardization of, um, of what Judaism ought to look like. And so many scholars will say that Judaism proper actually only really begins after the exile. Um, prior to that, we have a, a variety of Israelite beliefs that overlap with each other. Um, but, for example, worship at the temple, sacrificial worship at the temple is a mainstay of Israelite belief system that has to change in the post-temple world. Right, both um, the first and the second temple. So let me right. use that to ask you whether the crisis of the first century uh, of the Common Era could also be seen as a precipitant for the um, development of a second text, namely the, um, the Gospels. Yes. That the Jewish um, people experienced a, um, a crisis. Um, and, you know, the, the apex of the crisis was uh, the destruction of the temple in 70. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And the first set of Gospels are written in Greek not long after that. That's right. So from a historical perspective, might we see the same process taking place? Yes, that would be my short answer. Okay, good. <laughs> Um, um, one of the interesting things that we see, though, is uh, Paul, who really shapes the and, and guides his, his perspective, sort of uh, gives a framework for the New Testament. Um, he actually lives and dies before the Second Temple is destroyed. Um, and what, so what we're seeing is um, probably uh, the solidification of Christian belief and the, the um, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the kind of movement, dissemination of, of, of right. Christian beliefs in the aftermath of, of the Second Temple, which really gives, that crisis really gives an impetus to the growth and development of this religion. But it, even before the destruction of the Second Temple in the first century, um, there are a lot of different Judaisms that are circulating. There are a lot of different ways of understanding what it means to be Jewish. And that actually goes back to um, uh, the third, second centuries BCE, particularly the second century BCE. So um, you said something that surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't. And that was, it was your understanding that Paul, who's usually thought of as uh, post-temple, post-70, you're suggesting that Paul and the epistles were written pre-70. That's what uh, biblical scholarship has concluded. Fairly. Right. We're not trying to yeah. suggest any um, listener change their religious faith. We're having a different <laughs> conversation this right. morning right. about how scholars look at these very important texts, important to them, mm -hmm. um, to understand the development of faith and the development of society, and important to people of faith from a different perspective. That's right. And so scholarship dates uh, Paul's letters, well, so, so the, the epistles um, come in two kinds. There are the ones that Paul probably wrote, and there are the ones that Paul probably didn't write. And were um, written in his name. And were written in his name. And those, like uh, Timothy and Titus, right. um, most scholars will agree have to be second century texts because the, what they, what they uh, describe uh, looks much more like second century conditions. Um, they would have been anachronistic in the, in the first century. Um, but the undisputed Pauline epistles... Um, like uh, Romans and First Corinthians and Galatians, for example, um, are written in the 50s and early 60s. Hmm. Uh, so they actually predate the Gospels. 
And that would put them in the context of all the different conflicting Jewish perspectives, whether it's exactly. the Essenes or the Pharisees or the That's Sadducees, right. broad political terms. But yeah. perhaps our listeners are aware of those broad designations either from their own tradition or from reading Josephus. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I thank you for being a guest. We began with looking at Genesis 1 um, and the creation of humanity, the creation of Adam, and then looking at Genesis 2, and we looked at the creation of men and women in both stories and moved on to a wide-ranging conversation about how biblical scholarship over the last 150 years has looked at the Hebrew text and, uh, in that sense, also the Gospels. I want to thank Professor Shauna Delansky of Carleton University for joining with me this morning for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. This is Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear this program and a rebroadcast on the CHRI website or on iTunes as a podcast. Shalom and good morning. Shalom.